<laughs> Makes pretty good hot dog. That <laughs> does not count. <laughs> oh, okay. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. 75 years ago, the greatest invasion in history occurred as the Allied powers invaded northern France. Today, we continue our series of roundtable discussions with Texas history enthusiasts and talk about how D-Day came to Texas. So, let's welcome Vince Leibowitz to the show to talk about this very special topic. Thank you very much. Um, I'll tell you guys, uh, D-Day and how it, uh, the news of D-Day came to Texas is a very interesting and somewhat forgotten uh, portion of World War II history. We think a lot about what happened overseas, both in the Pacific front and on the European front. And we think in general terms of social movements like women going to work, we think about things that happened on the home front. But we often forget about the little snippets of everyday life that occurred and that went right along with the calendar as things like D-Day. Uh, and so that's, that's what I tried to explore and tried to give people a feeling of is what the everyday Texan was doing on June 6, 1944, and how in particular they learned the news of the Allied invasion uh, of France. Wow. Well, I'm excited to talk about that. But first, we're going to throw out our standard non-sequitur intro question at you, Vince. What's your favorite German restaurant in Texas? Well, I'll tell you, I hate to say I don't have a favorite uh, German restaurant oh in Texas. I, I hate to say that, especially <laughs> living in the area of Texas where I do. Um, I just don't have one, I'm afraid. Well, we're going to send you some recommendations shortly. Scott, make a recommendation. <laughs> well, I, of course, am going to choose the one that's uh, right around the corner from my house, um, pretty much uh, the Bavarian Grill right here in Plano, Texas. Um, I go there as often as I can. Love it. Mmm, delicious. Uh, I'm going to go with the aptly named Wahlberg German Restaurant in the tiny town of Wahlberg, which is not far from where my parents live in Salado. Well, I am just going to throw out, uh, there's a Der Wiener Schnitzel in Plano. <laughs> Makes pretty good hot dog. That <laughs> does not count. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well then, you know, if you find yourself in New Braunfels, go to Krause's Cafe. It's a lovely big German beer garden. I was just there this spring break with the kids and some friends. That uh, Service was a little slow because we came in in an off time, but the food was delicious. Vince, before we jump too much into the D-Day to Texas piece, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your day job, and a little bit about your Texas history project? Absolutely. Uh, well, as you've said, my name is Vince Leibowitz, and I'm actually a fifth-generation Texan. I was born in Tyler and raised in Mineola, and today I live in Columbus, which is the county seat of Colorado County, and I serve as the managing editor of the Colorado County Citizen, which is one of the state's oldest newspapers. Uh, it has been operated, I would say, semi-continuously since 1857 and continuously since about 1867. Um, as managing editor, I handle uh, most of the day-to-day -day editorial work for the paper, as well as do some writing. And I'm not sure if any of you guys heard the story about a little creek down in south-central Texas that was so polluted it actually turned black, uh, but that was Skull Creek, and that happened right here in our area of the county, and I broke that story uh, for the citizens. Some of the major daily papers uh, caught on to it a little bit later, uh, but there's uh, no small news, just small places, so we certainly have uh, interesting things that go on here. Um, and my project in terms of Texas history, although I, I don't necessarily think of it as a project in the sense that it will ever be finished, is my website, contemporarytexashistory.com. Uh, and it's a place where I do a little work chronicling the history of, of Texas in the 20th century, for the most part, with the occasional forays into the 21st uh, or the 19th century. And I began that because as I would research one project or another, I would run across little items that I thought, you know, this should get some more attention, or maybe I should research this and look at it some more. Um, and none of those topics were necessarily vast enough to become a, an academic article, something in Southwestern Historical Quarterly, or even a chapter in a book. So I thought an online repository 
Observatory would be a good place to collect them, and hopefully I will compile some of those uh, perhaps in print uh, in the near future. I kind of consider them little vignettes of contemporary Texas history uh, with a few bigger projects uh, like the D-Day work thrown in there. Well, the work's fantastic, and it it really, really shines. So we'll post the link in the notes. We're going to share it out on our feed. But uh, definitely check out the work that uh, Vince is doing. So you're and and as to your journalism credentials, you know I would use the term bona fide. He's a bona fide journalist on our show, folks. Yes, sir. Um, you can you can definitely tell that um, to the folks that uh, occasionally don't like uh, like what they read in our paper. It's a it's a small community, so we get a lot of feedback <laughs> directly from our hmm. readers, as you can imagine. So, Vince, um, simply but broadly. Uh, what is it that you love about Texas? I would have to say that it's the fact that Texas is both geographically vast and culturally diverse. You can go up to the high plains around Amarillo. You can go down to the beach at Port Aransas to the hill country, North Texas, Uh, to Crockett, to the Piney Woods, and see that we have tremendous geographic diversity. You can see everything from mountains to to rivers and streams, and just as much as you could if you, you know, traveled to Utah or traveled to Maine. We have something very similar in all of the different uh, parts of Texas, but we also have tremendous cultural diversity. Um, Not only do we have rich African-American and Latino cultural heritage, but we have, as your uh, question at the top of the show alluded to, we have great German culture in Texas. We have a Czech and Polish culture from which I'm actually descended, um, as well as more recent additions to that landscape like the Vietnamese, the Laotian culture, Cambodian culture, and other Asian and Southeast Asian cultures that have been calling the, the Houston and Gulf Coast area home for, for several decades. So you have a little bit of every part of the world here geographically and culturally, and that's probably what I love the most about Texas. Yeah, I, that's it's good, you know. I like hearing that because we've we've discussed that in the past. How you you have the whole world within the borders of Texas, and it's amazing. So, uh, going a little bit deeper, then, um, what do you love about Texas history in particular? Well, I would have to say that part of what I love about Texas history is is similar to what I love about the the state. Our history is just as diverse as our culture. Um, you know, we have everything from larger-than-life characters and unbelievable events that are both unbelievable in good ways and in very bad ways that have shaped our history in a way that few other states could really claim. And no matter what your interest in history is, whether it is disasters, political intrigue, uh, Old West shootouts, uh, Texas has a little bit of all of that and more. Every one of our 254 counties has their own unique history, and it might be vastly different from the one next door. So you can really never get tired um, of, of researching and enjoying Texas history. There's always something new for you to learn because it is so diverse, because it reflects the history of a state that is extremely diverse. Well, you know, Mike here is the, also a, a multi-generation Texan of Polish descent. I don't know oh, if you really. Heard. Well, if you go back and listen to our very first Christmas episode, uh, we did we did an episode on Panna Maria, uh, and that was Mike's uh, one of Mike's ancestors oh. was part of that Polish that first Polish community, the first mm-hmm. Polish Catholic Church in was in the United States, correct, Mike? No, it was the first uh, Polish colony in the state of Texas. Yes, and then they have a big, beautiful church down there. There are all these interesting giant European style churches down there that uh, that don't stick out from the landscape a little bit from um, <clears throat> the dusty brush of South Texas. But uh, yeah, our Panama Maria episode is uh, fantastic. I'll have to uh, check that one out. My Polish ancestors came in the wake of the Panama Maria settlement. I want to say about 10 years or 12 years after that happened. I'd have to look at the exact date, but that was that was definitely what started what became a pretty good sized wave of Polish immigrants to Texas. We did a. We also had a, a previous episode a couple years ago with the guys from the Bohemian podcast to talk about what the heck are all these Czech folks doing here in Texas? Yeah. It's one of those great questions about, uh, as you said, it's the mini melting pot that makes Texas of all these cultures here. It's what differentiates and makes Texas its own independent special sauce, I think. And I am just very happy that they brought us the kolache. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only in Texas can you find those things, and they are the well, best. It's, it's the, the ones in Texas are, are better, I think, than what you can find yeah, Good luck finding one in Oklahoma, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so Vince, let's, let's get to the, the main event here. So we, you know, when we were talking about different uh, com- you coming on the show and having some conversations about some things, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was you'd mentioned that you'd just done an article uh, on the D-Day invasion and how, it, how the news of it came to Texas. And since we just observed the 75th anniversary uh, of that invasion uh, just a few weeks ago when we're recording this show, uh, tell us about what drew you to that story. As with a lot of things uh, that end up as a project on my site, I was looking for something else when I came across it. Um, I was looking for something very closely related, but I didn't expect to find what I did. I was actually looking for more of a D-Day reaction story of exactly what people on the home front thought in their own words. I thought that I would turn to the pages of Texas newspapers, both the dailies and the weeklies, and I would find neat little stories that said, you know, this is what the mayor had to say about D-Day, and this is what the pastor of First Methodist Church had to say about D-Day, and something akin to what we might see today after a, a major uh, natural disaster or after, um, you know, a, a current event like a shooting, something like that. And I didn't find anything like that. What I actually found were first-hand accounts of how the news of D-Day came to various places in Texas. And it was such a very somber uh, day and a day of reflection for people that I very quickly realized why I wasn't seeing those stories of, you know, this is what the mayor had to say and this is what, you know, the man on the street's reaction was. It was really because... It was so solemn. I don't think the newspapers were really out looking for that type of reaction. It was such a large cultural phenomenon, even in small-town Texas, uh, for everyone that you knew in these small towns to in some way be impacted by this. They knew somebody that was over there, one of their children was over there, something along those lines. So I found a completely different chronology of the day than I was expecting, and it started um, you know, with telling you how the invasion news came to a particular uh, city that you might be looking at, and then it would go all the way to what happened in the afternoon. But it painted it in very broad strokes, and no single individuals were ever really um, pointed out in a lot of this coverage. It was very very different from what I expected, and that's kind of how I got turned on to the story, was reading these other stories that had the minutia of, well, we turned on the siren at such and such time, or this operator picked up the phone and called another operator in this town and told her the invasion had begun. Um, That was not what I was looking for, but I think it was probably a bigger story than the one that I actually came uh, to tell. Hmm. And uh, there was one person you did mention, and that was the governor. Uh, who yes. received the news early early in his morning um, that the uh, the invasion had occurred? Yes, the the newspapers said that the lights were on uh, much earlier than usual in the governor's mansion, and Coke Stevenson uh, had, I'm sure, a prepared statement uh, prepared that he released at that hour, uh, and that particular bit of politics was really the only politics of the day that you could find in the D-Day coverage. Mm -hmm. The AP story that circulated in a lot of Texas newspapers led with Coke Stevenson and the lights on in the governor's mansion and then just kind of chronicled what was happening in other cities. You had very few instances of mayors or uh, city council people or, you know, any local officials actually putting themselves out uh, in the forefront of the D-Day story. And I thought that in and of itself was was very telling because if you had a major news event like that today, um, there would be no shortage of politicians clamoring to get in front of the closest reporter. So in the in the end, what did what did Texas officials or just even Texans even really know or understand about this invasion plan? Well, so 
what the home front knew, what Texas knew, and what the rest of the home front knew was that their boys from their towns, from their high school graduating classes that were over in England were the most likely guys, uh, troops that were going to be used for a ground invasion or for air support of a ground invasion of Europe. It was known that there was going to be some kind of D-Day invasion, some type of ground invasion of Europe, and that had been known for some time. But that's really all the public knew. They didn't know the vast details of Operation Overlord as we know it today. The newspapers didn't print uh, even if they would have had them, they wouldn't have printed details like that. For one thing, um, you know, censorship was a very real reality of, of wartime news. You had to be careful what you printed because you didn't want to hand, uh, you know, hand secrets off to your to your enemies. So even reading the newspapers in Texas in the days and weeks before uh, D-Day, you see mention of it. You see mention that there will be a you know a, a great allied invasion, but that's really all that you see. It was on everyone's mind, and it was more so in Texas simply because of the sheer number um, of troops that we had serving in World War II. If I'm not mistaken, Texas sent more um, of its young men to World War II than any other state did. If we're not number one, we were number two. Yeah, um, I believe. just to interrupt, I believe you're yeah. correct. We did an episode a couple of years ago about that, and Texas not only sent more men, I believe we had a higher proportion of casualties uh, in combat action. That is correct. We did. And so knowing that, and when you actually look at some of these newspapers that would list some of the boys that they had in England, and you look at towns of, you know, 3,000 people, and they're listing 70 70 men that are over in England that could participate in the invasion, that really touched these local communities in a different way than, than we have a concept of today. So people were very aware this was going to happen. There were civil defense activities going on on the home front. The same things that were organized to black out your town for the the blackouts in case you had an air raid, uh, those groups of people were also organizing that there would be churches open um, when the news of the D-Day invasion reached your town, there would be churches open. So people knew that it would happen, but they didn't know the day, they didn't know the hour. They knew generally it would come in late spring or early summer. And that's how everything else happened from there, is they had plans to go open the churches and let people know with some type of prearranged signal. So Rome... In World War II history, Rome falls on June 4th, 1944, which is uh, two days before the invasion. Actually, the original date of the invasion, if it wasn't for uh, fog and storms across the channel. Um, but Texas's 36th Division was actually engaged in that action uh, to take the city of Rome. Uh, was this part of the dominant discussions in Texas's newspaper just before D-Day? Yes, this was the the main section of your front page uh, war news uh, for Texas newspapers in the days before uh, D-Day. And an interesting angle to this, and you can even tell in some of the papers that did not print extras but went ahead and remade parts of their front page um, on the very, very early morning hours of June 6th, one of the stories that was being pushed down below the fold was about a man um, by the name of Major, uh, Major General Harry H. Johnson. He was actually from Texas, and he had been named the military governor of liberated Rome. And so that was a major story in Texas that tied into the 36th, uh, 36th Infantry um, and the taking of Rome. And Johnson was actually from Eagle Lake from Colorado County and then went to Texas A&M University and entered the Army in World War II and had stayed you know, ever since. Um, so he was actually going to probably get more play in Texas papers than he ever did. D-Day pushed Harry H. Johnson as well as the 36th uh, and the fall of Rome off the front pages. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, though, if you look at most of the major dailies on June 6th, you will see Harry H. Johnson either mentioned on the front page or you'll see him right inside on page two or three. Yeah. Well, as so I want to take a minute to talk about this, the 36 before we move on. So the, the, the 36th infantry obviously was the Texas national guard unit, a uh, very famed unit Their Their insignia was a, was a red letter T. Uh, they had been in Italy for the past uh, year at least, and they had actually had really horrible casualties uh, during the first part of the year. Um, 
how had Texans dealt with that? I mean, their their casualty rates were uh, obscene, quite honestly. So, how what's the news talk about it? How did how did Texas Texans dealt with that since it was predominantly young Texas men? You know, the interesting thing about all of the casualty rates from the weeks before and surrounding. D-Day um, is it seemed like at least for a period of a few weeks, the news of the worst casualties was actually not the biggest news of the day. Where you were invading and where you were going was a little bit bigger of a story, and you'll find the casualties more embedded you know, inside the coverage. But I can't specifically speak to how the casualties of the 36th were being received in Texas um, in, in the in the days immediately prior to D-Day, that really isn't something that I have focused on. But yeah. I can tell you from reading, you know, history and a lot of newspapers in this period, Texas was very much paying attention to what the 36th was doing, um, and this was definitely something that you would see more articles about the 36th on the front pages of Texas newspapers throughout this period in time than you would other uh, other divisions because they were, you know, very well famed in Texas. Uh, but I regret. I I'm not. I can't tell you too much about how their casualties were received. Yeah, they, you'd have to kind of go back uh, earlier in the year where they really had the worst action. And of course, it, uh, later in after they'd gone into southern France, they would have their own uh, uh, Texas's own national hero uh, in Audie Murphy. That was part of the 36th. From Kingston, so, Texas. Or yes, some people sir. would say Farmersville or Greenville. But. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on where you're from. He moved around a lot. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I think you might have already covered this a little bit, but when did people on the home front uh, in Texas first learn of the invasion? If they stayed up very late into the night, um, the night of June 5th going into the morning of June the 6th of 1944, and were listening to their radios, they very well had probably become aware that something was about to happen. Some American radio networks at that time were broadcasting news that German radio networks were broadcasting news that the invasion had begun. Now, the German radio networks were actually broadcasting that before the invasion had begun, but some American networks had been repeating that late into the hours of, of the night on June the 5th. Um, but most Texans actually learned if they were asleep, like you or I would probably be at 3 o'clock in the morning, they learned because of a very significant sound somewhere outside of their door. In most cities, it was a fire siren or what we would think of today as a civil defense siren. In some places, that was followed immediately by church bells. Um, in Austin, it was fire sirens. In Aspermont, people knew because a telephone operator got a call from another office um, that it was underway, and so she had the night watchman give a blast on the fire alarm. And that's really how people first knew. That signal had been prearranged through the civil defense infrastructure that, you know, if you're laying in bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, and you hear the siren go off and there's no reason it should go off, then uh, that's because the invasion of Europe had begun. Um, now, there was confusion in some places. People thought it was a normal fire alarm. In fact, if you still live in a rural community in Texas, we have this type of fire alarm that goes off to summon the volunteer firefighters to the station. So it's easily confused with other things. Um, but most Texans learned of it because of a siren because of church bells, and then they got up, turned on their radio, and did other things. Interesting. Okay, so people hear the news, but, I mean, let's be honest. We know how people react, have reacted at uh, basketball championships and football playoffs. We know how people have reacted at other things in these modern times. What did the Texans uh, do when the fire alarms, these things were off, when the word came out of what was happening in Europe, what our boys were doing? Was there something special about the way Texas reacted versus the rest of the U.S.? In terms of special versus how we reacted versus other places did, I think, no, it was a very similar reaction, but I think it was magnified in Texas because of the cost uh, that our state was paying in terms of the men that we had overseas. So I think you had a much better chance in 
the scenario that I'm about to tell you, um, if you lived in a small town in Texas, then if you lived in a small town in Iowa, of going to one of these churches and running into someone who actually had a son or a husband that was overseas. Texas had a very sober, somber reaction to these reports. Um, along the Gulf Coast area, places in Houston, Port Aransas, they actually shut down their business districts for the day. People were in church as early as 3.25 in the morning uh, in some parts of Texas. Part of the prearranged civil defense thing was the churches will open their doors and you can come pray. There are photos from the Abilene newspaper of churches that are full um, of people at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, people were gathering in small groups on street corners. Newspapers put out extras. One of my favorite pictures is three soldiers in a Greyhound bus station in Dallas reading one of the extras of the Dallas Morning News. Um, the Dallas Morning News put out four extras. The Austin Statesman put out five. Um, people were getting that news as well. Nearly every account of the aftermath hours of people learning about D-Day in small Texas newspapers mentions that people were essentially glued to their radio for the rest of the day. Um, the radio had the broad strokes details. Um, it had a little bit more, uh, you know, color, but people came to the newspapers for the facts and the details. At that time, the newspapers could print big maps and things you couldn't, couldn't have with radio. Um, but overall, it was a somber reaction. Um, people went to church. Um, if they went to work, most left early, um, you know, because they had more prayer services in the evening. Um, and it was just a very kind of calm uh, day in Texas and one when nearly every community had on their mind not just a general concept of the lives that could be lost, but they had the names of those boys because a lot of these papers actually printed the names of the soldiers that they knew were in England and maybe going over as part of the invasion. Some of them printed that on their front pages as part of their stories. So it was the cost was very much on the minds of Texans that day. And this was a Tuesday. It was that's the middle of the week. Yes, so, middle of the week. So did did uh, did the a lot of the war industry also sort of shut down for the day, or did the war factories... industries would be an exception? They did not shut down. They had a moment of silence in the morning. About three different war industries that I could speak to specifically that were mentioned in news coverage. One was in the Dallas area. One was in the Abilene area. One was in the Austin area. They all had a moment of silence, observance, prayer in the morning when the news came over, but the defense industries did not shut down. Now, the retail sections of your towns did shut down. In fact, mm -hmm. Houston is probably the largest example that you can find, um, and I didn't find that Dallas, San Antonio, or Austin's business districts shut down, but in Houston, um, several publications reported that Houston's business district shut down. Well, that's got to be pretty remarkable for the war industry that, like, Given that the large proportion of the workers in in a lot of these armaments plants and factories were women, and their husbands might have been there. You know? Yes, I, I thought about that, and I wondered, you know, why did they why did they not shut down? And then you think about other coverage that you've read of the war industries. I mean, those were the closest thing that we had on the home front to winning the war because right. that was producing the planes and producing the ammunition, et cetera. And the only thing that I can think is male or female, father of a soldier or, or not, they must have had just tremendous fortitude and tremendous commitment to their mission uh, to just keep on working because I, I think if I was – in that position and found out that a loved one of mine had possibly <laughs> invaded France, I don't think I could keep putting rivets in the side of an airplane. Yeah, yeah, that's, that it is amazing. But, you know, you're, you're right. And those were those were 24-7 sh you know, shift work factories that were constantly running, and uh, like the shipyards in Beaumont and in Houston and in Orange. You know, they're, they're just working 24-7 shifts. So... You know, yeah, you're right. It's they were they were fighting the war as much as uh, as much as the men in the uh, in the front lines. Yes, very much so. So you mentioned that uh, we talked about you talked about the radio that people were glued to the radio, mm -hmm. uh, and then you mentioned uh, that the that the big newspapers had extra editions. Was the news early enough to hit the main editions of the papers? 
The news was early enough to hit the main edition of the papers, depending on when your city printed its paper. Okay. And to, to give the audience um, some idea of this, when I first started in the newspaper business, I worked for the Tyler Morning Telegraph in Tyler, Texas. We typically had two editions. Uh, we had an edition that we completely finished at uh, 10 o'clock and put to presses at 10 o'clock. And then when it was printed, it got on trucks and was sent to 32 counties in our distribution area. In between that edition and the next edition, which was basically the same edition but with errors corrected and <laughs> stories off of the wire updated, um, we would make those corrections and then it would go to press and that was the edition that went locally, the, the home edition. It went just inside the city of Tyler. So imagine that most of your large dailies had some setup like that. They circulated well outside Amarillo, Dallas, uh, El Paso, and so they, whether they were an, an afternoon paper or an evening paper, excuse me, a morning paper or an afternoon paper, depending on when they went to press. If they were a morning paper, they were going to press at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. Um, and in some cases, you did have some that went uh, out in the panhandle that went to press late enough that they had it in their first editions. Austin started running about 3 o'clock in the morning with its first extra. Dallas had its first extra on the street um, by, I want to say, 3.50 uh, is what the, the Dallas Morning News said in previous coverage. So there were very few up in the panhandle that got it in the first edition. Everybody else started an extra. You even had a weekly paper like the Aspermont Star that printed a very, very tiny uh, extra that cannot be more than a 10-inch by by 5-inch um, uh, piece of paper that that thing is on, uh, but you did have you did have a lot of newspapers print extras, whether they were morning or nighttime, or which, you know, whether they were morning papers or evening papers. They immediately went to press with an extra that day. Wow, that's that is forgotten technology right there. It's it's so interesting that you know the the speed of the news. You know, the radio was such a revolutionary thing for people, but you know, the, it's the newspapers were, were where people got the real details. Because they absolutely were. You had some newspapers on D-Day, or there was one newspaper that I read about, and I wish I could call its name, but it actually had someone set up outside its office with a loudspeaker giving news of, of D-Day throughout the early morning hours. They truly were the central point of communication mm -hmm. for people, because if you think about it in this time, we didn't have local radio like the local radio that kids from the 70s, 80s, and 90s grew up with. Your radio was not necessarily local to you, even though you were able to get it you know, right there in your home. It was right. probably from some far-off city at that time. Yeah, because they were high-powered. The big yeah. high-powered stations could be reached across the country, so you might exactly. listen to something out of Chicago or St. Louis or even maybe pick up New York. The you know the ABC out of or NBC out of New York or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So we we talked some about the military industry and, and their reactions, but what about um, you know Fort Hood, Fort Sam Houston were among the the largest bases in the U.S. at this point. Um, there were numerous other camps and posts throughout the state, uh, as well as a ton of air bases. Um, how did um, you know the the families of the military that were stationed there. How did they how did they react to all of this well, going on? If this is a really interesting question, and I wanted to actually, I went and did some digging on this because I did not, in my initial look through hundreds of papers relating to D-Day, actually find one mention of families around Fort Hood, Fort Sam or um, you know, any of the, the like Camp uh, Barkley out near Abilene, I, I didn't find a lot of mention of family. So I, I went back through some of the dailies around those areas again, and I didn't find much mention of family. And it made me wonder if, you know, for the most part now, the military is not like what we think of. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it wasn't, excuse me, we may have to retake that. <laughs> for the most part, the military now is not like what we think it was or what, what it was back then. The idea of your family deploying with you everywhere was not 
so much of a thing like it is now, particularly those bases in Texas were used a lot for training. So you were not on those bases for the most part as a soldier for any significant length of time longer than six weeks. Now, if you were an officer or a more senior person, your families did come with you. But because you traveled so quickly between the different bases and went off to war, it was hard for your wife or your girlfriend or your family to kind of follow you around the country like we think of military spouses now. So as best I can answer that question is it was not a huge impact because there were not nearly as many of those families around those bases as as there would be today. Fort Hood was not necessarily such a huge place full of military families as it is now in part because the nature of service has changed and the nature of what's done at those bases has changed dramatically since World War II. Yeah, I mean I you know when you when you talk about that it, it makes sense because you know in the middle of the war um, like you said, there's a lot more, uh, I guess, throughput at these these stations. Like you said, people come in, they train, they get deployed. Um, yeah, that's that's a good perspective that, that uh, hadn't really considered. Now, Camp Barkley near, near Abilene did have the D-Day observances. They had a special military review for an officer that was there. Um, and then to give you some idea of what some of the bases did do, they actually had flyovers over some towns. Paris got a flyover with uh, six planes in a V formation um, at 9 o'clock in the morning on D-Day. So these bases were definitely participating in the home front activities, um, certainly towards morale and then towards morale of their own troops. They just were not um, involved in the home front activities as in that they were to a large number of civilian families right there captive to that base. Well, that make that does make sense. So, but now there were several several military units that were either from Texas or largely based out of Texas, or might have been, like you said, have even just trained there that directly were involved in the uh, the D Day invasion. Uh, you know, the 36th Infantry was not uh, because they were in Italy at the time. But uh, one that was pretty famous was the 90th Infantry Division, which was the Texas Oklahoma Division or the Tough Hombres. Uh, and they actually served at Utah Beach. Did, and then the other one that's really famous is Second Armor, which was based out of Fort Hood. And uh, they'd actually been in combat since uh, the invasion of Africa. And they were they went on to Omaha Beach. Uh, is there any news or anything that we were able to find about those particular oh, units? You could, absolutely. Probably not. Um, in the immediate days surrounding D-Day, um, what these units may have been doing on those particular days would have come out a few days after most likely and while they don't particularly ring a bell to me because i was searching the coverage for different things i know that i've run across these many times and the good thing about um, research today is that so much has been digitized if you have a credit card. <laughs> um, you you can find access to thousands of newspapers that years ago would have meant hundreds of miles of driving across the state you know, to sit in front of a dusty microfilm machine. And you could absolutely go to any one of the commercial newspaper archive sites and put in the 90th and find uh, a thousand articles on them as well as the second um, the second armored. And if you, you know, I encourage any of your listeners that have had um, relatives that served in any of these, you should really do that because seeing what those divisions, what those units did, um, not just in this period of the war, but throughout the war is really eye opening if you have never, um, you know, looked to see what your, you know, what your relatives uh, division did in the war, you might be very surprised. Right. And, and this war was, this war was really, it, it somewhat occurred in the First World War, but really this war was the one of the first wars where men from where men were not grouped by their states. They were really uh, distributed to different units. Uh, you know, the 36th Infantry was a Texas National Guard unit, so that was a little unique. But for the most part, uh, you know, men from Texas served in many different uh, units, and then <clears throat> excuse me, and then. Yeah, there were other units like the airborne units and the rangers where they were volunteers. So, uh, you know, they they were they were scattered throughout uh, different units serving all over the world. And the other thing, I guess, is that in the immediate days after the the invasion, you really wouldn't necessarily find well the 90th Infantry Division, 6th Regiment was 
serving in this place in you know in northern France because that was still somewhat military sensitivity, I guess. Yes, yeah, it, it may be weeks or even months before you knew exactly, um, you know, what a particular unit did, especially if they got into, um, you know, some combat that was very serious, and, you know, you ended up with people coming out of that with major citations for bravery. Sometimes you would see um, that an entire incident is kind of withheld from the media during World War II until such time as they make the major awards that went along with it, because those were very much morale things for the people that were getting drafted was, you know, to be able to see that, that, you know, people who committed these tremendous acts of bravery are being recognized for it. But it was also important for it to be packaged, for it to be marketed, you know, with that whole scenario of what they did, you know, very much um, like what happened with Audie Murphy and Helen Back, although the movie came out years later, obviously. Well, I'd like to throw out one important Texan who is present at Normandy that we haven't talked about yet. And that would be the great battleship Texas. So uh, did you find anything in your research or looking beyond? I know we've talked about the battleship Texas in our second episode uh, five years ago. But (laughs) for those who maybe haven't listened to it in, say, five years. uh, No, is there anything that uh, about the Texas that came across in any of the research or the pieces you saw? You know, actually, I want to say that about a week and a half after D-Day, I saw a couple of wire stories th- that had come across about the battleship Texas that were done solely, you know, obviously the wire services, if they knew they had a large number of papers or a large number of readers in a particular place, they would craft content for them. And I believe that um, that's what AP was probably doing when they did those pieces um, on the battleship Texas about a week or so after um, after D-Day. Now, I will tell you the neatest thing that I have found on it subsequently is the Houston Chronicle was one of many papers uh, that did a lot of stuff for D-Day observances. And they have a great interactive on their website where you can actually see the path of the battleship Texas and where she was before D-Day and the runs that she did on D-Day and where she was from April 16th of 1944 forward. And um, that was done in so much detail that I was actually really surprised because I had not seen uh, that much detail before, um, at least on a map of what all of the battleship Texas's runs had been during this period of World War II. Um, but she certainly was one of the many ships that distinguished herself going back and forth around the the coast of France and then back and forth several times, it looks like, between England and and, and Ireland on the maps on the Chronicle website. So I thought that was very, uh, very interesting and very illuminating to actually see her runs put out on a map. And I shall be going to look for that. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, very we talked cool. way we talked way back when on our second episode uh, about that the uh, they the actually I think there was a wire story that I found about the Texas uh, a few days after Normandy uh, where they the fighting had extended beyond the range of the guns so they they uh, pumped water into the bilge tanks to uh, give it a slight list and increase the elevation of the guns so they could fire further inland. That might have been the one that I ran across. Yeah. <laughs> I think we may be on the same story. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so is there anything else interesting that stands out to you that we may not have covered that uh, particularly caught your interest relating you know, to Texas and D-Day? Absolutely. I think that, that one of the most interesting things for me that's still an undertold story with regard to D-Day is what did the... Latino communities in South Texas do and what did the black communities in Texas do? Because there are only two out of close to 100 uh, documented observances that I can find that mention that they were in some way integrated. Um, The one in Eagle Lake, Texas, that was on the grounds of what is now City Hall in Eagle Lake uh, was integrated. And there was one, I believe, in Cameron, where the the way the writer mentions in the story that it blended with certain voices, you could tell that it was an integrated service. There were some African-American newspapers in Texas during this time period. And one of the next things I'm going to try to do is get my hands on those to figure out 
um, you know, what Texas's large black community was doing uh, on D-Day, and then hopefully with a few of the Spanish-speaking, um, or not Spanish-speaking, but a few of the local papers in the Rio Grande Valley that focused more on the um, Hispanic community than on the white community, I'm hoping that I can find similar evidence of what happened in those communities, because as you can imagine, um, it was not just, you know, white Texas kids that went off to fight. It was the African-Americans and it was the, the Hispanic uh, young men as well. Although Texas was such a vastly different place and our armed services were a different place, many of them may not have been landing on Normandy, but nonetheless, their parents and their communities were very invested in their service and in their survival and return. So, you know, I want to find some of those sources that can tell us what was happening in their communities on D-Day. Um, and as it is with tracking down things in minority communities, it is sometimes a, a much more difficult chase to find it. Um, so I'm hopeful that there is some documentation of that out there. Amazing. Well, you're not just a D-Day guy. You're a Texas guy. I have to ask, you have an amazing list of stories on your website that you're sharing. Uh, but are there any other projects, stories for your site, or maybe some additional things you're working on that you'd like our listeners to know about? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll give you an idea of, of three things briefly. Uh, one thing I do, I'm a member of the Colorado County Historical Commission, and if you don't know what a county historical commission is, you can look it up. There's one for all of Texas 254 counties. <coughs> Excuse me, they're run through the, uh, the local county commissioner's court appoints you and you serve under the guidelines from the Texas Historical Commission. And if you've ever driven the roads of Texas and seen those black and silver markers, that's the majority of the work that your county historical commission does is find topics like that, um, get them marked or assist people that have the history in getting the markers up there. And the state has a program called Undertold Stories Markers that allows you to get a marker for free because, believe it or not, those plaques can cost up to $3,000 uh, that you see on the roadways. So this program helps you get them for free, and I just finished an application for one of those uh, for a small African-American church here in Columbus that was founded by freedmen, uh, including a guy named Benjamin Franklin Williams, who was an early Reconstruction uh, legislator here in Texas. So Throughout the year, I'm always looking for a couple of things that I can do to get a historical marker for my county here uh, locally. And recently, um, within the last year, I completed a manuscript uh, called Bloody But Uncompromised, The Jehovah's Witness Experience in Texas, 1938 to 1945, and that chronicles the Jehovah's Witnesses' free speech activities, incidents of violence against that religious sect in Texas, and um, the story of numerous conscientious objectors uh, from that religion during the World War II period. Um, and there's a whole reason of why those years are picked and, and everything, but I won't bore you with them. Um, and then uh, the most current project I have is working on the uh, biography for a woman named Etta Moten Barnett. She was the first black woman to sing solo in the White House, and she is from Texas. In fact, she is from Weimar, Texas. Uh, that's where she was born. And uh, I got a historical marker for her under Undertold Stories in 2018, and I will be going to Chicago in September to work with her papers at a library up there um, with the hopes of producing the first full-length biography of Etta Moten Barnett. Those stories sound remarkable, and we look forward to reading them and seeing them uh, get published. Uh, what is uh, one story that you haven't talked about that you feel more Texans should understand or that you'd like to tackle in the future? You know, that's a hard question, but I would have to say that one story, and it's kind of a big story, that most Texans should have a better understanding of is just generally what happened in Texas, in particular what happened in your own community between World War II and about 1980. That's a period of history in Texas that we don't talk about a lot. That's a period of history in Texas that's almost too new to have a lot of stuff in textbooks. But everything from urbanization to annexation to the development of various industries, shifts in populations, towns that were once um, you know, nice little rural communities that are now just exurban bumps in the road, 
so much of Texas changed in those years, and if people paid attention to this history, they would understand a lot better what is going on today, because a lot of it has its roots uh, in this period of Texas, or in, in this period of history uh, between World War II and about 1980. So that's not particularly just one topic. It's a a wide scope of history, but it's one that I've found that's been ignored by a lot of people, and if they didn't ignore it, they would have a better grasp on what's happening in the here and now. I mean, and that is a 35-year period with a pretty profound social, political, and economic shift, and not just in this country, but in the state. Absolutely. We went from, um, you know, longhorns to space shuttles in that period of time, essentially. Um, I know that's kind of a corny way to say it, but it's it's very true. Uh, change came so rapidly to Texas after World War II um, that it changed our political systems. It changed our social systems. It changed our, um, it changed our systems of government at the local level. You had a lot of cities that switched to, you know, city manager type uh, of government that they have now during this period of time. So there's, there's certainly a lot to unpack about that era. But like you said, it's a 35-year time span. It's, it's not, you know, 75 years that, that you need to pay attention to. It's, it's a short window, but there's a lot that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, we were just, I was just in southeast Texas, and, you know, in just a, even at the very tail end of that time period, there's a, a major uh, demographic group that just, settled in Texas and is one of the largest subpopulations of Texas, which you mentioned earlier, the Vietnamese culture that was not here before. And suddenly there's a very large Vietnamese culture settling in Southeast Texas. And so, you know, that produced its own uh, impact in the story of Texas. So I think that's a great idea. I mean, it's a great, it's a great point to make. It's not sexy enough to be, uh, (laughs) to be, you know, Texas, Texas history, and it's it's like you said, it's too recent early to make it in the textbooks, but we really should examine a lot more of that. Yeah, that's fascinating work you're doing. So uh, we salute the work you're doing. So keep up the yeah, it's a great job. And uh, viewers, just you got to check it out. Go to contemporarytexashistory.com. Look for him on Twitter. We'll post some links in the show notes, and uh, you know, but share this with people. If you love Texas history, there's a lot of people doing great work out there. So we salute you, Vince. You also, of course, do you, you know your the newspaper you work for also has a website, and I'm sure you have stories that you're writing uh, for not history, but for today, what's going on right now in Columbus County. Uh, would you like to share that as well? Absolutely. You can visit the Colorado County Citizens website at uh, coloradocountycitizen.com and uh, enjoy the website that we uh, just uh, relaunched back in February. And if you heard me talk about uh, the situation at Skull Creek here in Colorado County earlier on the uh, episode, you can just uh, find one of those stories right there on the website. Click on the word Skull Creek at the bottom of it, and it'll pull up all of those stories. I think there are about 36 that we covered in a nine-week period. Well, I hope you had fun, Vince, and, uh, you know, you got a lot to say, and you do some great work, so we'd love to have you back on another time if you enjoyed yourself. I absolutely did. Thank you guys very much, and uh, I really appreciate the invite, and let me know if, if uh, you'd like me to be a, be a guest again. I'd be thrilled to. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. <clears throat> if you like what you heard from Vince, be sure to look him up at contemporaryhistory.com or visit his Facebook page at Texas Contemporary History. Just search on Facebook and it will show you the magic. He's also got a great Twitter account, so go look up Vince. We're big fans. If you like this show that you heard today, we'll tell your friends about what we're doing and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. If you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway.